The following message was given by Dr. Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business, and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message. So Father, again, as we come to your word, we... Lord, we come because we need your word. We need to be strengthened by your word. We need the light which your word brings to us. Father, we need the warning which your word brings to us. And so, Lord, we come that you would speak to us from your word. Holy Spirit, help us, help me to teach and help each one of us to hear what your word says, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we didn't quite finish their study. And rather than rush it or, or go into extra time, I said I wanted to um, just come back to it. And we'd come to, in our notes to point six, our freedom in Christ will be challenged. And we'd looked at that. But I want to, um, I want to just comment a little bit more about verse five under under the point six, our freedom in Christ will be challenged. And then I want to comment a little bit about our need for our, to understand our call. In verse five, Paul says, we did not give in to them for a moment. And uh, literally there in the Greek, it's even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. I wanted to, to comment on this particular verse Paul's kind of concept is, you know, if we, get, if we get caught up in something which is unsound, you know, just for a little time as, as teachers and some of the speakers, as Christians, and we get caught up in some kind of unsound teaching, you know, just going around and we get caught up in and so on, we may well escape because we're mature enough and we know God's word well enough. In the end, it kind of sounds good and then we realise, now hold on, this is just not right. So we get caught in it and then we withdraw. This is a sense of Paul says, I didn't leave, let that happen for even an hour. Because he says the next phrase, in order that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. He's, he's aware that if we get caught into unsound teaching, even if it's for a little while, we generally have influence on others. Because the danger is we escape but those who we've influenced don't. And so the, the, the danger he is concerned about is that if we lose our freedom in Christ, if we get caught up in, some, in something which is fundamentally unsound, even though we recognise that the danger is in that period of time, while we're caught, we influence others, we move on and they don't. So that's, that's the danger. And we'll come back to it because uh, in, this, in Galatians, he kind of, his argument unfolds in, in greater and greater strength. I then simply want to say, to finish off last week's study, is that this, what I call a need to understand our call. And let me read, the, let me read from verse 6 to verse 10. He says, sorry, Galatians 2.6. He says, and from those held in high regard... And thought to be something, what they are makes no difference to me. 
because God receives literally, and this is a funny expression, God receives not the face of a man. In other words, he's not impressed by externals. For me, those of high standing have imparted nothing. On the contrary, they saw that I'm entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter to the circumcised. For he who worked in Peter for his apostleship of the circumcised also worked in me for the Gentiles. And acknowledging the grace or the power given to me, James, Kephas and John, those who are reputed to be of high standing, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship in order that we should be for the Gentiles and they for the circumcision. Only they asked that we remember the poor, which very thing we were keen to do. Now, there are all sorts of things one could comment about it, but the heart of what Paul is saying here is is that not only doesn't he, is he unwilling to abandon the message which he preaches, which is not from man or through man, it's from God, the revelation which he's had of Christ, but also he understands to whom it is he's meant to preach this message. He has a clear understanding of to whom he is called. And for Paul, the, the message and... The call again are very interlinked. Because Paul, if we if we turn, if we turn to Ephesians chapter three. Uh, yeah, I know, thank you. If we turn turn to, to Ephesians chapter three. Paul verse two, Paul says. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace. That was, uh, and it's interesting, I've recently had a good look at this word administration, so I'll come back to it, or stewardship. That was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, in all of this then, that you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Now, we're going to to strike this in Galatians chapter 3. But see, this is the message. The message that, that Paul understands, the revelation given to him, not just as that salvation is by grace through faith, but the salvation extends beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And that revelation was not given to Peter. It wasn't given to Kephas. It wasn't given to the apostles. Their ministry was to the Jews. They preached to the Jews. They faithfully established the Jewish church and so on. But until Paul has his revelation, and one can go, one can look at the accounts and acts of Paul's testimony, whether it's in Acts 9 or 21 or 26, where he's recounting his testimony. When the call comes to Paul, Ananias lays hands, prophesies on him. The message is that he preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, now, God will confirm the validity of the call of Paul through the incident involving Peter and Cornelius in Acts 10-11. But, see, when Peter starts, goes into the home of a Gentile, starts preaching, speaking about Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls on them. 
Peter sees that God gives the Holy Spirit to them as much as he did to them when they first believed at the time of Pentecost. He baptizes them. Now, whoops. You know, how can you how can a Jew baptize a Gentile? The Jews felt, yes, Gentiles could come into Judaism, but they had to become Jews first. And there was no suggestion Peter was requiring them to become Jews. In fact, this is going to be the heart of the message in Galatians. And so you've got Peter, who's called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, has this one instance of Gentile evangelism. It's like God is saying, I will validate Paul's ministry through Peter's experience. Paul doesn't need it because he has his visitation from Christ. He has his calling. But the, 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 the message for Paul and the call of Paul were really close together. He's not just called through faith, but he's called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And if, if the Jews who came to Galatia to undermine Paul's message were to able to successfully argue that the Gentiles had to become Jews first, in other words, there was no salvation for Gentiles. There was only salvation for converted to, to Gentiles who become Jews. If they had succeeded in that, they would have destroyed Paul's message and destroyed his call. And so Paul is saying, look, I went up to Jerusalem firstly to see if there's something wrong with my message, but something more than the message got validated, they also validated his calling. And he's actually not impressed by them, you know, who they are, they're important, but they see, he's, he gets this in verse 9, they acknowledge that God's grace is given to, to me, mentioning James, Kephas and John, that God had given it to me and Barnabas, the right having fellowship, that should be, we should literally be for the Gentiles, in other words, that our ministry was for the Gentiles, and they for the circumcision. And so this is calling. Now I... I want to come back to this in a more general sense for us to say, because I'd call this outworking the desire to please God. In, in our desire to please God, I think that it's not just what we, what we say, but it's also to whom we say it. Where are we called? It may be to a people group. In this case, it was a Gentile. could be to a region could be to an age group, could be to children, to adults, could be to women, you know, it could be whatever. If there is a specific call, our obedience to God is, is not just an obedience in what we preach, but to whom we preach it. And I, the, Satan's desire to subvert the church can start when God... And when, he try, when Satan tries to divert us from the, the ones to whom God has called us. And, um, and our, obedience, we, our obedience has to be there. And I, to me, there's this need to understand your call. 
calling us to business? You say, I'm called to be in business. I'm called to be a witness in the workplace. This is where God has put me. And because I'm not running away from it, I'm embracing what God has called me. And I am where God's placed me. Then God will bless me. I don't try and run away with it. And I've known people who were clearly called to be business who tried to go in the ministry and lost their faith. You know, it's strange to say that's kind of issue. I've known you know, people who've tried to go into missions that don't belong in the mission field and they come back, their faith is really shaken. On the other hand, I've known people who are in business and working who are clearly called and they resist and resist and resist it and they, their, their faith can be shaken. So I think this, this, the place of our obedience is not just in what we preach, but where we preach it, how we share it. Um, I've known, I, I can think of a situation where a woman who clearly was called to marriage, she was married, she had children and motherhood and so on, and she tried to act as if she didn't, she wasn't a mother, and didn't have children. I said, I oh, know, God's called me to go here and preach here, and God's called me to preach there, and I said, I said, no, you're called at this point, particular point in time in your life to be a mother and a wife. That's your calling. And God will bless you where you are. She says, no, 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 no. God's giving me this revelation. I'm getting all these words from God. And I said, well, it's not God. It's quite evident where you're calling us from. Yes, in the future, but wait and be patient. And, uh, but she wouldn't listen. Well, in the end, it cost her a marriage, cost her kids, cost her faith. Because she was actually rebelling against God, using spiritual language, trying to walk away from the responsibilities she had. So it is a, there is this need to understand our call and be faithful to it. And, I, and, it, and it's an issue... Paul continually refers back to his call. He uses the word stewardship and, and he, this word oikonomia, which is actually drawn from the language of Greek poetry. It's a, in Greek poetry, there was the fundamental uh, kind of, the, the, the fundamental subject of the poem, which is called the hypothesis. And then there are the plots within the poem as to how the, the fundamental thesis was, the theme was to be unwoven, and each of these plots was an oikonomia. And it was kind of God, the Paul understood in the overall scheme of God and the plan of God that in all of that, in the plan of salvation, God had a plan for his life. This was his oikonomia. This was his plan, that he would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And each of us have got to kind of understand it in our own way. For some it's to be a missionary, for some it's to be mother, for some it's to be in business, to... The same is to reach students while we're at university for this particular point in time, and it's to, to sit and embrace it. So, the uh, last thing I'd say, I think knowing our call is what allows us to continue in times of great difficulty. Because often it's discouraging. Often there's resistance. You know, often there's a sense of failure. Often others will say, why are you wasting your time? And what anchors you is not what's seen or what's been revealed to you by God. And you, you kind of dig in. Now, having finished that then, I want us to turn to the next set of notes which you've all got.
and and to move from that into the next section which I've called I've called faith the foundation of salvation and life and Paul, if we just we start reading, why don't we just pause for a second? Because some of you might, in just transitioning here, some of you might like to make a comment or, or ask a question related to what we've just said. Coming back to the example you gave, but that lady, when she was called to be a mother mm-hmm. and, and a wife, and she said that she heard her scriptures and so forth. Usually, I mean, would you? Well, see, clearly if she's, this is where the Bible would guide you. The question for the tape is about the example I gave of the woman. She made a vow in marriage. In having children, she'd accepted a, a, a godly responsibility towards the kids. The scripture says to her that that if she's going to go on a missions trip, she can deny her husband but by his consent for a short period of time. And secondly, that if she doesn't take care of her own family, she's worse than infidel. So if she neglects the children and neglects the needs of her husband, on both counts, the scripture just says it's not right. So the Bible itself is able to, to say to her, what you're saying is not right. This call may be there, but it's clearly not yet. And uh, but when she didn't want to hear what, what Scripture says, don't talk to me about Scripture, God's spoken to me. I knew it was a form of rebellion. She was trying to get out from under what she perceived to be the restraints of marriage and the restraint, the responsibility of her own kids. And it's very sad. And, uh, but I've seen men do it. I've seen men act, you know, equally responsibility, equally irresponsibly but use a kind of spiritual language to defend what they're doing, which is clearly not right. All right? Well, let me read. So we're still in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It says, But when Kephas came to Antioch, I resisted him to his face because he was condemned. For before some from James, this is from Jerusalem, came, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those of the circumcision, in other words, Jewish believers. Verse 13, and other Jews were hypocritical with him, so that even Barnabas was enticed into their hypocrisy. Isn't it interesting that here we have, here we have Peter, you know, an apostle. <laughs> he's, he's already betrayed Christ prior to the crucifixion, is distraught, is forgiven by God. You know, in Luke 22, 32, Jesus says, look, Satan's desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail and but before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me thrice, and you know, all of this issue. He's been through all of that. He comes, he's preaching, some years have passed. This is, 
This is not, uh, this is not a few, few months after the resurrection. This is 15 years later. He comes there, clearly he's had the, he, he's, he, I presume he's had the experience with uh, Cornelius. And he comes to Galatia, he's there eating with Gentiles. But when some people come from, um, from James, from Jerusalem, he withdraws. Why? And the answer is that is there is this temptation to want to please men. To maintain, you know, whilst in Jerusalem, he doesn't have to face this issue. He's just, he's with Jews all the time. But Paul shows courage in dealing with a problem head on. Now, this is Peter. <laughs> and Paul just tackles, tackles him. This is not always popular in many cultures. In many cultures, they say, we well, don't tackle things head on. You know, you wait till it's all quietened down later on, you take him aside and whatever. But this, the issue is so important that Paul understands as a leader that if he doesn't deal with this publicly, what these people have done will do great damage. And uh, it's like what he's just said. He's, he's just alluded to the fact that, you know, like the life of a leader is like a pebble in a pond. The ripple effects of the things that you say and do are enormous. Peter demonstrates he's a believer who knows what the right thing to do is. He'll eat with the Gentiles because of Cornelius, but he still wants to be accepted by his friends and companions before God had shown him the, the true way. You know, he still has these old friends. I suppose in some ways, this is just an analogy and it's not... But it's helpful or not, I'm not sure. It's like someone who comes into a Pentecostal church and out of an evangelical kind of conservative background and comes into a Pentecostal experience and is freely enjoying his time with Pentecostals, but suddenly a couple of evangelicals kind of visit the church <laughs> and he chooses to go over and sit with them and he doesn't put his hands up and doesn't <laughs> sing in the spirits. You know. You know, there's a credibility gap between what he believes and what he, the way he behaves. Paul tells us that the cause of the gap is the fear of man. It's this fear that we must overcome if we're going to please God and gain his acceptance. In John 9, 22 and 23, Mary Edith says, it's obviously concerning Jesus, John 9, 22, 23. He says, His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews were, were already agreed and you remember the story in John 9 about the healing of the, the man on the Sabbath? And who did it? We don't know. Well, they knew, but they were afraid of the Jews. And it says, they are afraid that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, they should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents says, he is of age, ask him. So... I want to say in, in ongoing pursuing our desire to please God and living the life, the, the difficulty is not always the truth of what we know to be the truth, but the influence of others around about us, our fear of man, desire to please one another. If we go back to, to Galatians, go back to Galatians 2, 
within, um, well, we can see that, that even Barnabas, who's known for his sincerity and his care, gets deceived, which is quite extraordinary if you think about it. So the pressure at times is great. This is a very sober warning for us about the effect of hypocrisy, which can have on even the most sincere of believers. Barnabas is always portrayed in Scripture as a sincere, generous believer in Christ. He's the one who goes and gets Paul when no one will go near him. Even his name means sons of encourage, son of encouragement, yet he was seduced by the hypocrisy of Kephas. When a church leader falls or is deceived, the great danger is that even mature believers will fire. I was hearing, hearing very recently of a church in Sydney, it's quite a large one, well, sadly, there's been you know, the exposing of you know, considerable immorality by more than one of the pastoral staff. And I'm just wondering what it will do to even this hypocrisy by them. I'm just wondering what it will do to even mature believers. Verse 14, he says, But when I saw that they were not walking straightly in the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas, Before them all, if you being an ethnic Jew do not live like a Jew, you've just been eating with the Gentiles, how can you compel the Gentiles to be Jewish? You know, you know what, what's, what's, what's this about, Peter? One minute you're living with, eating with the Gentiles, next minute you're withdrawing. You, come on, what's, what's this all about? And you know what it's about? It's not about what Peter believes. <laughs> he knows it's not about keeping the commandments. He knows it's by faith. But the temptation of the fear of the people causes him to live inconsistently with what he actually believes. Verse, verse 15, he says, We who are Jews by nature are not from the Gentiles, know that a man that has not become righteous from works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we believe in Christ Jesus in order that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What Paul is saying is that we do not need to be Jews to be Christians. They've, Paul says, look, I'm a Jew. Peter's a Jew. We tried to gain God's favour through the keeping of the law and we know you can't do it. And that's why we needed Christ. We needed the grace which came to us through Christ. We know. We know the futility. And he says, well, why then when we know you can't do it by the law, why would you want people to have to become Jews as if through the law they can be saved? Now, how does this relate to us? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Yeah, he did. But the question of the tape is about having Timothy circumcised. The issue there was one was one is that Timothy's father was known to be Greek. Mother was Jewish, and I think his father was Greek. And Paul was going back to Jerusalem into the temple, and he couldn't take him into the temple. Um, whilst he's uncircumcised. 
In fact, if you recall what happened, he goes to Jerusalem and they accuse him of taking someone uncircumcised and arrest him. And it was expedient, not because of what he believed, but because of where he wanted to go to what he wanted to do to have him circumcised. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, look, you know, I'll become a Jew to the Jews that I might win the Jews. I'll be as a Gentile to the Gentiles, I might win the Gentiles. He, he's, he's saying for himself, if it's a missions issue, I'll, in a cultural sense I'll conform, but not in a belief sense I'll conform. And the Timothy case seems to be a case where he wanted to take Timothy with him, but the only way he could take him where he was going was if he had him circumcised. Um, and Paul may, you know, makes it pretty clear that it's not, that's, the, you know, that's why it's done. It's not because Timothy was becoming a Jew. Um, because Paul, I think Paul makes it quite clear that he doesn't believe that he needs to become a Jew. I guess today, it's interesting because, you know, today Jews would say if your mother's a Jew, you're a Jew. Which would have made him an uncircumcised Jew. But I don't think it goes back to New Testament times. I think that concept of identifying Jewishness through the woman is a medieval thing. It's not a historic thing, but I'm not sure. So we do not need to be Jews to be Christians. And let's just, uh, let's just back off a little bit and talk about this. This was the first major theological controversy in the church. Um, and which could have split the church. You could have ended up with two churches. You could have ended up with a Jewish church and a Gentile church. The question was, must Gentiles become Jews before they can become followers of Jesus? In Acts 15, there's a council called the Council of Jerusalem. The question, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem James gathers the elders of the church together. Peter talks about what happens to Cornelius and and Peter presents his defence of what has happened. And the issue of must a Gentile become a Jew is resolved. The answer is no, they don't. What they do say, however, is that if Jewish believers and Gentile believers are to have fellowship with each other, then Gentiles need to realise there are certain cultural issues, certain foods which cannot be eaten, because if you're going to meet and they're around the same table, then there can't be food offered to idols and strangled meats and these sorts of issues. In other words, this is part of their, their Jewishness. That can, But circumcision, which is a sign of their Judaism, is not required of the Gentiles. And it was resolved, because if it wasn't resolved, we'd have ended up with two churches. Now, if we, if we just look on one verse, if we go to verse 17, Paul says, If while seeking to be justified by our relationship with Christ, we have found ourselves to be sinners, then Christ is the minister of sin, and may this never be. 
Now, let me, this is, <laughs> this is Paul getting quite difficult. So let, let me try and understand what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, we're saved by faith, not through keeping the law. This is what Christ has done for us. So if, according to Christ, we're not under law, we don't have to keep, we don't have to be circumcised. So we don't get circumcised. But if we're meant to be circumcised, then who's the one who's caused me to lead you all into sin? The answer is Christ. You know, if Paul's message is wrong, that they must be circumcised, Paul says the, the origin of that is Christ. And so if we're seeking to be justified by our relationship with Christ, we are found to be sinners, then the one who's caused me to abandon circumcision is Christ. And it's Christ who's to blame. And he says, may that never be. That can't be true. And then he goes in verse 18. He says, let me get one step further. He says, in fact, in my own life, he says, I demolished this sense of the need to fulfill my Jewishness through circumcision. And if I build again on the things I've demolished, I demonstrate that I was at fault. You know, if I now, having rejected circumcision as required of Gentiles, if I now change my mind and say, sorry guys, you got it wrong, you've all got to be circumcised, then I demonstrate that I was at fault. In other words, he's, he's threatening the whole if he threatens the foundation that it's through faith, not through the law, if he, do, if he switches to and fro, the whole thing is undermined. Okay, now let, let me take an example of how this works itself out. Let's take Seventh-day Adventism. Seventh-day Adventism say, well, we're saved through grace, by grace, through faith. And then it says, but you must keep the law. In other words, they want Christ and the law. But once you reintroduce the law, you're actually undermining the very foundation of faith, which is, which is faith itself. He says in verse 19, he says, By the law I died to the law that I might live to God. And in a funny way, what Paul is saying, you know, the law itself taught me not to trust in it. And by my trying to keep the law and realising what it didn't do, I no longer see it as a means to coming to know God. And the next chapters three and four, Paul's going to un unfold this for us. He's abandoned the law as a basis for gaining God's acceptance. Not because of his faith in Christ, but because the law itself taught him to do so. And uh, I'll throw this in as one. Now, it's a little bit of a looking forward. You see, Paul ultimately sees the law as a schoolmaster. That we were never meant to have a relationship with God based on the law. The law was meant to bring us to this place of confronting us with our need for God's grace. That's what the purpose of the law was. Law couldn't bring me to God, it brings me to my need of God's grace and forgiveness. And so I did what 
what the Lord wanted me to do. I abandon my trying to gain God's acceptance through the law, which is what the law wanted me to do. He says in verse 20, he says, or at the end of 19b, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that which I now live in the flesh, in terms of his physical body, I live by faith, which is in the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself on my behalf. He came to this point of dying to everything which is a Jew, he was told would please God, gain God's acceptance, but which is really coming out of himself. It was self-attainment, it was self-righteousness. It was self-pleasing. It was self-motivated. He came to the point of saying, just as Christ died to fulfill what the Lord required, I too must die because the purpose of the Lord was to lead me to Christ. I cannot go on living the way I used to live. So it's a powerful term. It says, you know, he says, I've been crucified with Christ and when we get to chapter 3, which unfortunately, I'm, I'm really sorry the chapter heading's even there. Because he will speak of, of Christ having been publicly portrayed as crucified. And he's talking about his own life. That they can see in him someone who's died to trying to live by the law. And he's fellowshipping with Gentiles. He's <laughs> abandoned circumcision for the, for the Gentiles. He's eating foods, which otherwise, they can see in him someone who's died to form a manner of life. And he says, it's no longer I who live. It's not the old me. But Christ lives in me. There's this, this new relationship with Christ, which will unfold for us more. And he says, the life which I, that which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not by through the law. My faith which is in the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Now at this point, you know, I'd, I'd want to say that none of us here tonight come out of a Jewish tradition with the tyranny of the law, with the, with the 600 and plus ways in which you can break the Sabbath, with the way your hair's curled, with the, with the observance of the sacrifice, sacrificial system and all of these things. None of us come out of that. So we, we have to ask ourselves in terms of wanting to please God and have, you know, what... What is the nature of the foundation of our Christian faith? And if it's faith, what did it replace? Because there will have been another foundation. For Paul, it was the law. For Jazz, it may have been Buddhism. You know, or for whoever it might be. There is, but it, whether it's Buddhism, it's self-centered. Self-attainment. Self-denial. You know? If it's, if it's the secular man in Australia, it's 
the concept of I'm a, I'm a self-made man and I worship my creator. <laughs> this, this, this sense of feeling I am who I am, I've made myself who I am. I am where I've got want to be. And if God's going to accept me, it's, he'll accept me because of who I am. Yet the truth is in faith, God doesn't accept me for who I am. He expects, accepts me despite what I am. That's the nature of faith. Because if in any sense at this point I believe God's acceptance is because of good works that I've done, being on charity boards, giving money to the poor, preaching the gospel to the world, being the pastor of a church, leading a youth group, whatever. If at any point I believe God's acceptance is, of me is based on these things which I've done, then it's not faith. Turn, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. Verse 3, Paul says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passion and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy, being hated and hating one another, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So let me pose a question to you. For whom do you think it's more difficult to become a Christian? A good person or a sinner? Uh, you answer a good person. I think it's more difficult for a good person. It's more, it is more difficult for the good person. Because the sinner understands they have need of forgiveness. They, they, they actually know they need God's grace. They know they can bring nothing to God. It has to be an act of God's grace. There is an act of faith. But for the person who perceives themselves, you know, I'm an ordinary kind of person. I, I'm not perfect, but I, you know, I give to charity and kind of help the old lady across the road and haven't kicked my dog this week and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Who, who has a sense that they're all right, then the message of faith is actually quite difficult. It's very difficult for them to come. Now, the irony is, however, that they, they may well join the church, find it no, difficult to join. They may not find it difficult at all to belong to church. In fact, they might feel very comfortable in church. But they might like to be in church and like Christians. But all the time believing that God is their God because of who they are. 
not on a basis of faith. And we know also, at least I know, I presume you know, but the way you, what you present on the outside and what you are on the inside is two different things. And Jesus understood this. You know, he, to, the, to the righteous Jew who's not committed adultery, he says, yeah, but when your eye looks with lust, you've, it's, you're, you're doing inside what you're condemning others for do externally. The greed and pride and all of these things internally are there. And we can conceal it. We can conceal it so well. People can conceal it. They can be respectable. They can be polite. But they can also believe this in their own way they're self-righteous, that, they, that in God's sight they pass the weighing of the scales. Now, We're at the point where we're talking about what it means to be crucified with Christ. So we move, we move pretty well through this series, this particular page. But I want, I want to come to this because right here is what Hudson Taylor, the missionary of China, calls the exchange life as to who's living. If I believe... Well, let me, let me back up and explain, explain it in terms. Because Paul will say it, and he'll, he'll say it in Romans, say it in Galatians. You know, you're, you're subject to the law until you die. It's the nature of the law. So if you're, if you're married, the only thing which can break the marriage is if you die. I mean, so you can abandon your marriage, but otherwise you're bound to your husband until you die. But if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a woman, you die, you're free. Now, it's the law is in force, you're in bondage to it, you're bound to it until you die. But when you die, no more law. Because Paul understood this, therefore the key to getting free from the law was to die. Die to living for yourself and to embrace a life which now Christ is living through you, in you and through you, rather than you living for yourself. There's this point where Paul says, I no longer live. The life I now live, I live by faith, not law, because I've died. I'm now free from the law. I've exchanged a life under the law for a life of faith. A life of dependence upon God, a life of trust in God, a life where I'm righteous, not because of what I do, because Christ has done. A life where I'm not dependent upon myself, I'm not trusting myself, I'm trusting in God. That this, this exchange has taken place. And in that place, there can be absolute peace. Because whatever happens, always depends on God. My security is in God. No longer striving. Romans 12, present your life as a living sacrifice. So you take your life and say, here it is, Lord, here's my life. Any trouble, because it's a living sacrifice, we kind of wriggle off the altar. <laughs> and and uh, this ability to stay in the place of faith, 
because we've died to the law, is actually very difficult. It's, it's real. It's a reality. It's a spiritual reality which we can enter into. But to live in it is actually quite difficult. But if you don't live in it and you're in ministry, you carry the burden for the ministry and the ministry becomes very stressful. And I remember reading a biography of Hudson Taylor's and he says he's got this little booklet called The Exchange Life, which is based on this. And, and he, people have said to him, how can you? you know, here you are, he's this missionary leader. He's got 1,600 missionaries on the, in China. Every one of them were dependent upon the money which came to him. And he'd pray and George Mueller would pray. And a third of all the money came from one man, George Mueller, who himself was praying it in. It's, one, it's a wonderful story. But they said, how can, you, how can you handle the stress of the whole thing? Well, the answer is you can't unless you're living by faith. Unless you've, you've died to saying this is, this is dependent upon me. I, I remember in 1984, December 84, 17 years ago when I became the first pastor of Christian City Congregations. And uh, we had a budget of $750 per week. And I have to tell you, I could believe for $750. If it had been $1,000, <laughs> I'd have struggled thinking, well, how can I do this? <laughs> you know, but I, I had to. I had to have God in his grace. I had to. And the offerings were 250 and when I, the Sunday before the offering had been 250 and the Sunday I came on staff, we needed 750 And we had $3,000 in the bank, and if you can do your mathematics, that's $500 less. The offering, the, our bank account was going to last six weeks unless the offerings moved up. And someone offered to actually pay all my salary for years so we would only have need 250 and I said, no, this has got to be an exercise of faith. Has to be. I have to know. I have to know God is in this. I have to, I have to know God. God can do this. And so, so our budget was thirty-five thousand dollars. And for me, this was the like an exercise of exchanging my life. You know, I'd coming out of a business life, professional life, where money comes from work, and here, here do I, how do I lead this thing? How do I lead this church? Where does this money come from? And the answer. If I can't get to a place of, of faith, which is a place of rest, then to be in ministry is going to be just as stressful as being a chartered accountant. I have to come to a place of rest. That was 35000 17 years ago. And we've got a budget this year of a million dollars. And I have to tell you, I think I was more stressed the first year than I am this year. Why? Because you become, after what, you become used to the faithfulness of God and you learn to rest in the place of faith. Because the alternative to rest is striving. And Paul gets buffeted, he gets shipwrecked, he gets stoned. He gets flogged. He, he, it's not like it's easy. It's a struggle. 
But in all of this, you know, he, he says, but I'm not perplexed, I'm not crushed, I'm not this. You know, it's, it's what happens inside him. Now, what I'm wanting to say to you guys, because I've, I've deliberately called this series The Overcoming Life. I'm wanting to say to you, it's not just being saved by faith, it's living by faith. This is what Galatians is going to unfold for us. That the faith is not just how we get to know God, it's how we live with God. It's not just Christ dying on the cross, it's our being crucified with him, which takes us to that place of faith where we can live with him, where Christ is in us. In verse 21 he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. He says, I don't rebuild the law. I've abandoned it in favour of faith. For if righteousness is through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So let me ask you some questions. Number one, what was the foundation of your life before you came to put your trust in Christ? What was the foundation? Because it won't have been faith, it will have been something else. So, secondly, when you put your trust in Christ, you died to your old life. You had a death, you had a crucifixion experience, you died with him. Don't try and raise from the dead the life you used to live. Let it die. Continue to put your trust in Christ that you might enjoy a faith life and close fellowship with him. And I, and I, I mean, I, I, we're going to come back, but I mean it, the sense of enjoying the faith life. The thing which strikes me over and over again in the New Testament is a church incredibly persecuted, incredibly suffering, unjustly. But the word which occurs over and over is that of joy. Peter says, joy inexpressible. In Acts 5, it says, or Acts 13, I think it's 52, it says that in the context of persecution, they are continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. To the Philippians, you know, he, he speaks of his joy for them, though he's in prison. How can this be unless it's not what you see, it's what you believe? Unless it's, it's this life of faith. The moment we try again to earn God's favour, we are saying that Christ did not need to die for me. I can do it on my own. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to unfold this as we go on, but when I look back at my early years as a Christian as I've spent time counselling with many people over the years, when I find someone with an area of sin in their life they're unable to break, they come to me and they say, I've tried and tried and tried and tried to break this thing. 
It's a, it could be, but it's rarely demonic. The real problem is the way they're trying to break it is through the law. They're simply saying, I shouldn't do this, therefore I won't do it. And they're striving legalistically to try and attain righteousness. And until they come to this place of saying, I can't, God, you're going to have to do it. I've come to this place of dying to trying, come to this place of faith. Then and then only does God's grace come into their life, which allows them to walk in victory. And, and uh, Paul, will, Paul will explain what this means because it's, uh, it's like dying to an old life is like putting off an old life and putting on a new one. This is the imagery here. I can't just stop the old. I've got, to put on, I've got to consider the old dead. I've got to believe the old is dead so I can put on a new. There's a, a faith, whole faith life of living which says, I don't do that not because it's wrong but because it belongs to an old life. In my new life, this is what I'm going to behave. In other words, it's behavioural based on a belief. If you know anything about counselling, different counselling models. And counselling models which are purely trying to train you to behave differently, people regularly revert back to the old behaviour because their fundamental belief hasn't changed. And the belief, from a gospel point of view, we have to believe is, I no longer live. I'm a new person. That person who used to live that way died. And we'll, we'll kind of explore that. Why don't we pop the tape off for tonight? Just, uh, stop it here. Thank you for listening to this message by Dr. Ian Jagelman. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org.